how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 432, where I spoke with Herbert James Winterstern, the writer-director of the storm-chasing film Supercell. This movie follows a teenage boy who runs away to follow his father's footsteps, legendary storm chaser Bill Brody. The movie stars Alec Baldwin, Skeet Ulrich, and Anne Heche. In this interview, the director talks about the obligation for directors to also be writers today. His partnership with Anna Elizabeth James... His experience as a storm chaser, why the profession is less dangerous than it seems, small budget blockbusters, and why he wanted to make a movie about storm chasers. If it's your first time here, make sure to hit that subscribe button. You can also get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, based on this podcast for free over at brockswinson.com. That's the book and audiobook. I would say uh, when I was a kid, probably seven, eight, nine years old, uh, my mom would put me to sleep. I would hear noises coming from the basement. Usually my father would be watching a whole slew of films. He'd have popcorn on his chest. He'd have a Diet Coke. And when my mom went to bed, I would sneak downstairs and he didn't care. Yeah, I mean, he, he just let me sit with him till 1 a.m. or whatnot. And I was watching films as an eight-year-old. I think one of the films I enjoyed watching most with him was Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston. Uh, we're talking the original Planet of the Apes movies. Um, I don't know. I was just, I, I just remember watching movies with my dad. And, and then as, as, as far back as I can remember, my mom would capture home videos of our family. She'd always have a camcorder uh, that would play the VHS. And I eventually as a teenager would, would, you know, commandeer that device and start filming and making my own home videos. And it was never really a question for me. I knew I, I was more of a creative person. I wasn't great at math or, or test taking. I had terrible SAT scores. It took me quite a, a bit to get into a decent college, uh, being from Montreal, Canada. Um, so yeah, as long as I can remember, I've just been into the filmmaking or, or creating art with cameras. Was it? Were you ever writing early on? Was it always like a director point of view? Did you see like steel images in your mind? Like what kind of led you in that direction? I was absolutely not a writer. I uh, <laughs> it was always visuals. Um, it, it was always shots and 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 cutting together. Yeah, images with sound and music. Um, it wasn't till much later and even college that I. I had to force myself to write. And it's interesting because, you know, I think you'd agree 20, 30 years ago, directors could just direct and writers could just write. But it seems like over the last couple of decades, this past era, you know, writers and directors have merged into one filmmaker. And if you're going to direct a movie, you, you kind of have to write the screenplay. Um, so, you know, it is it. I, I write because I have to. I don't necessarily enjoy the process, uh, you know, uh, words and, 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 you know, that, that, that's not what comes easily 
to my mind, it's usually, you know, just shots and, and imagery. And that's why, you know, partnering with uh, Anna Elizabeth James, I call her Annie, uh, I was so lucky. We went to film school together. Uh, she is more of a, a, you know, a writer by trade. And uh, we collaborated on Supercell and she was, she was, she helped me uh, bring, bring Supercell to, um, to production. What was kind of the original idea there without, you know, giving away too many plot points and that kind of thing, but where did the idea come from? I went storm chasing in 2019 with my fiance. Uh, and I just went just for the love of it because I, I I've always loved weather. I, I would watch lightning over the ocean in Florida because being from Montreal, you would go travel to Florida often to escape the cold. And I, I went with her and it was an addictive experience to be in the Midwest, to see the storms as big as they get. And then they're called supercells because supercells are essentially thunderstorms that rotate mm. and you can see them spinning to the naked eye. And I don't know if it was, it was because it was so dangerous and so beautiful at the same time, I got a hook to it. And I, I, I remember I went back a week later with my friend, Johnny Wachter, who's in the film. Uh, he's an actor and I brought my camera and I just filmed shots of the sky uh i i filmed johnny in in close-ups and wide shots and i just coming back from that second trip i i, I said why haven't there, why hasn't there been a a movie about the storm chasing community since 1996 since twister yeah um there's been a lot of weather movies but there hasn't been a movie about the people that chase the storms and that was the fun thing for me for those who have just seen aftermath news coverage and twister what are the misconceptions about storm chasing you think um that it's dare i say that it's dangerous <laughs> i mean it is obviously dangerous i mean there is an inherent risk to doing anything i mean being a construction worker or driving the city bus i mean there's accidents happen when you're chasing a storm you know where the storm is <laughs> You know, it's more dangerous for the people, the locals that are, are just doing their day-to-day -day lives that aren't even aware of what's happening. Storm chasers are tracking the storm. They know where the center of circulation is. So in, in a way, being a storm chaser is, is safer mm. uh, than, than not being a storm chaser. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception mm. with, with that industry. So how did um, you kind of had some visuals to maybe provide that guide? You were aware of what the industry was like and some of those things. What were some of those first conversations like with Anna? What when did you start to put characters into place? I guess you know I um, when we wrote the screenplay, I, I, it was just more of a, a, a personal story I wanted to get out of me. Um, I. Uh, you know, the, the whole the whole concept of it being a father-son story and eventually morphing into a, a mother-son story is, is very accurate to my personal experience. Uh, I grew up idolizing my dad. And, uh, you know, he, he was just a hero to me, still is. And I, I always took my mom for granted. She was mm -hmm. always, you know, she was a stay-at-home stay mom. Um, she did our laundry. She, she made us food. And... I eventually lost her to Alzheimer's very early in her life. She, she was 58 years old. Mm. And when I lost her, one, I had never lost somebody so close to me. So the, the, the theme of uh, mortality and death was, was very present. And 
it was only when I lost her that I realized that it wasn't really my, you know, my dad, I love, he's a hero to me, but really my mom is the hero. Hmm. She was, she enabled my father to be the man he is. So in a way that, that those themes were very important for the film. I didn't necessarily have a like cast in mind. I just knew how to write these characters because they were my parents. Hmm. Um, so it made the conversations with uh, the actors that much easier because I was just telling them about who my parents were. Hmm. Now, something like that, where it is so personal, like with, with Anne Hayes, are you just talking? Are you letting her ask you questions? Or how do you kind of start to unravel some of that? Anne is, uh, it, she's so brilliant. And um, she asks so many questions. And she's so passionate. Um, I remember the first FaceTime we had, it was in pre-production. Um, you know, cast the casting process kind of happened late and fast. Um, you know, the first attachment was Alec Baldwin. And when you get your first star, things happen so quickly. And then before you know it, you're making a film inside of two months. So I remember we were, I was in Montana prepping for the movie and I had my first introduction to Anne and I was nervous, but I was excited. And I remember she was on FaceTime and the first 10 minutes she wanted to show off the, the the design she 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 did interior design of her loft in downtown LA and she's like Jamie you got to look at and and just she completely broke the ice right because it's you know it's my first movie these are prolific actors right you know they they have decades of experience and I'm I'm, I'm nervous I can't help but be nervous you know um but for Anne to know that because I she knows what she's doing mm -hmm. she wants you to feel like you guys are like you're like this and in instantly within five minutes, I felt like I was talking to somebody I knew for 10, 15 years. And, and she just, she was so fascinated by the science. Uh, I, she would like to say she was a scientist herself. She just was into, you know, the science of everything, you know, theology, religion, um, you know, synchronicity. She mm -hmm. just, she was like this force that just wanted to know everything she could and was a sponge. So Anne was, was unbelievable to work with because she just took everything in and she knew exactly with, cause she was so good at her craft, how to apply it. So when it came to shooting the scenes with her, I just let her do her thing. And of course there's, there's, you know, there's, there's tweaks here and there in performance and, and, you know, too much, too little, but that when you're working with a, an, a, an actor with that much experience, that's all you have to do as a director is, is say too much or too little and they that's that that's it they'll, they'll give yeah. you a range right i was there as a first timer um have you gotten any advice from mentors or preparing for this yourself where you feel like you can show up as as somewhat the leader but also be vulnerable how do you balance those two very different things it was a learning curve um i was very much uh scared uh the first few days, I, 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 I mean, the whole process, like I had very little sleep. And that's a secret, you know, I think it is normal to be scared. It is normal to not know in, in every moment what you're doing. But you can't really, you know, you have to keep that vulnerability to yourself because you have to make a thousand decisions every day, 12 hour days for 20 days straight. And you know, I was very fortunate to have my fiance with me on the shoot. She was kind of my therapist at night. And even uh, my cinematographer, Andrew Jarek, uh, who we went to film school together, to have 
collaborators on the film that I have history with and a shorthand with, I was allowed to be vulnerable in the car rides home from set. How am I going to do this? This was the, the conversation we had after day one. How am I going to do this? This is so much. This is too much. And I remember Andrew told me, because, you know, the, the movie, it's not an independent movie the way it's written. It's a blockbuster. It's a tornado movie. Movies like this get 50, 100 million dollars. You know, we get three to five million to play with. It's 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 nothing. Mm-hmm. And and I think he, I remember he told me after the first day, because we got shut down to high winds in Montana. So I wasn't even able to get the full day done. And then I had to take that work and add it on to day two, which was Alec Baldwin's first day. So my first day with Alec Baldwin now, I have a day and a half of work to do in one day. And I have to work with Alec for the first time. So I was I, ha- I had a lot of nerves in me. And he said, Jamie, forget about whatever you think you want to do in your mind. As long as you get the essence, the essence of the story it is you want to tell, you're good. And I think when I gave myself permission to like relax and take it easy on myself, I things started getting a lot easier for me. And and they always say too, um, you know, you never have enough time. People tend to speed up and they 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 speak quickly or they they skip steps in the process. The the trick is you slow down to speed up mm. because you know your impulse and your nerves will tell you you don't have time faster, 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 but you end up making poor decisions because you don't have time to think. So when I have a conversation with Alec and he asks me important questions that he needs to know for his character in that moment, I'm allowed to take two, three, maybe five minutes to think about it, Mm -hmm. even though you know that you don't have five minutes. I think that's probably the most important lesson was slowing down to speed up. I think I think it's a military expression. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. That reminded me of kind of what you're just going through. <laughs> it does make a lot of sense, though. So tell me, um, and you can leave as much mystery as you'd like in this answer. But how did you do these things? Are you capturing actual storms? Is there some CGI? What's kind of the combination to get that multi-million dollar effect on a smaller budget? It was out of necessity and, and the parameters actually played into the success, I think, of the movie because we couldn't afford to have big CGI or to have unlimited days and to have Russian arms following these vans to get all those amazing interstellar shots that we saw or, or Roland Emmerich, you know, omniscient shots from the sky. I, I, it was a decision to be as subjective as possible to keep the camera around the characters in the shit mm-hmm. and to really only see what's necessary. And in order to do that, rather than spend money, we didn't have on VFX, um, which we ended up having a lot of VFX, trust me, but a lot of it was anchored on let's get as much real practical effects on camera. Let's get wind machines. Like let's get rain machines. Like let's get dust, create the chaos in the frame so you don't have to rely on cgi replacement of course you have to uh tweak things and improve things so that there's continuity um but the trick with the skies and i have no problem saying this i think it's fascinating and i think it makes the experience more enjoyable we didn't we didn't create any cgi i think we did maybe two shots in the entire film and there were 400 vfx shots what the vfx was for was to take real footage that my storm chasing collaborators had because I've made a lot of close friends with uh, filmmakers in the field that mm. spent 10 years shooting tornadoes, Mamadis clouds, supercells. 
I was able to have access to their footage and then using the horizon line as a stitching point, very minimal VFX, we were able to take the foreground plate and then put the real sky background plate in the same frame. And then what you get is, I guess, the most real experience you can have when dealing with storms. Hmm. Was there anything um, those men and women wanted you to particularly try and portray with this film? Anything that they wanted to see on the big screen based on their roll-ups? Um, accuracy to science was important, not just for them, but to me. I wanted to, every time there's a screen that shows software being used, it was important to use the actual software that storm chasers use in the field. Um, you know, radar scope is a big program that a lot of them use on their phones and their tablets that show live updates and, 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 you know, basically pinpoint supercells and show the speed in which they're moving tell you if they're tornado warned or severe warned. Um, there's this forecasting tool that the College of DuPage uh, has called the uh, HER and the NAMNEST. Um, these are unbelievable forecasting tools that take millions of models and pare them down so that every hour you get a very accurate forecast to where things are going to happen. And a lot of that technology for them, I think, was important to, to to show the world and 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 that's what we did we showed as much as we could so you have a script that you co-wrote with uh, anna james you also did a show called siberia before this any other advice though about pitching this did you show up with i imagine this footage did you have steals a lookbook what are some of those things beyond the pages of the screenplay you took with you i i you, you want to arm yourself with as much ammunition so that you don't get nose um, especially if you're a first-time director, you don't have scenes. I mean, watch this scene or watch this trailer or watch this sequence. So for me, the big thing was I need a good lookbook. And a lookbook is what it is. It's, it's you know, usually there are about 20 to 30 pages and you pull reference imagery. Sometimes it's imagery that you shoot yourself and you show what this is going to look like. You mm -hmm. break down who the characters are, the wardrobe, the production design. There's never such thing as being overprepared for a movie because when you're in it and you're like having that military experience, all that preparation is going to come out of you when you when you just don't think you have enough time to think. Um, I did a proof of concept. So I, that footage that I filmed with Johnny Wachter, I cut that into a two and a half minute short film mm. that I put sound design to. It was a little bit of a non-dialogue narrative. I also use that to show how I was going to execute the movie. And I think those pieces with the script really benefited me in having producers and actors trust me to sign on. Now that non-dialogue teaser, um, I would imagine, did you, what, what did you, I'm trying to combine these questions. What did you learn from Siberia? Did you film first and then come up with a story later? Like how did you kind of put that together? Siberia was a very unique situation. Um, so I, I went to film school. Obviously, a lot of people that go to film school, they want to direct, but directing is not necessarily the job you get out of school. Uh, editing was my trait that I started being a professional at. And when I edited um, out of school, I paired up with a director making his uh, first feature film, and he hired me on as an editor. 
Um, and then because of that opportunity, he ended up writing and show running a show for NBC, which was Siberia. And I was the editor on that. Mm-hmm. And halfway through that show, they promoted me to direct episodes. So, you know, my path to directing was editing. And, um, you know, Siberia was quite a bit, you know, about 10 years ago, in between, I guess, that and this, um, advertising, commercial work. um, I started a production company where I would go up to Silicon Valley and work with tech companies, marketing their Mm -hmm. brands. Anything that I could do, which involved a camera and telling a story, I did. And trust me, up until four years ago, I wanted to make a movie. I wanted to make a film since I was eight years old. And it took me 34, 36 years, 37 years to do. So I guess it's, it's about being patient with yourself, but always be working and creating and, and, and exercising the muscles. Uh, that's, that's important. Is there anything you did specifically with your advertising career that, that kind of shifted over? I mean, I imagine a lot of it did, but did you purposely pursue different paths and different kind of mediums maybe um, to learn as much as you can when you did get to this level? I would say the, the corporate, the advertising stuff's difficult. I think, I think at a point it becomes limiting. Um, Working with actors aren't necessarily uh, something that happens quite often with that. I would say um, it, it definitely helped me in terms of, you know, when telling a story relatively quickly um, in the process of producing and directing and making my days. Um, also working with non-actors because, you know, when we're doing corporate type of marketing work and advertising, I'm dealing with real employees at companies. So making them feel comfortable mm-hmm. in front of the camera I guess that's a great skill set to have. But I guess, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, narrative filmmaking, um, I felt like I might have been getting a little stale. And I think, uh, you know, stepping onto set with actors and working with them in terms of dialogue and scene work, that was intimidating for me. Um, So if there's advice there, you know, doing proof of concepts, working with actors, doing short films, those, there's so many different muscles you can exercise. Um, and I, I think that you can't do too little in that regard. If you were kind of just getting started today, day one, what path might you take to try and get your foot in the door as a filmmaker? Um, I would say buy a DSLR camera. Um, there's a lot of affordable cameras on there. You don't have to get the latest edition, multi-thousand dollar camera you can get an older model for a few hundred bucks, get comfortable, um, just seeing the world through a lens. Mm. Um, and, you know, seeing what the difference is between shooting on a 35 mil lens and a 200 mil lens, start developing your language through lenses and a camera. I think that's step one because it's a visual medium and that's the most important thing for me. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. 
is just a few other ideas in the book Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.